All right, so the uh, the topic tonight, we're continuing on in Ayanhara, and we are um, moving tonight to talk about a little bit about Darkia Mary and Blagizen, um, which is the method of pouring lead. What I'd like to do before we get to that is to first introduce it, to say that, again, as we've been discussing, and I, I managed to actually get out my uh, citations and my outline, and I also sent along correspondence with Rabbi uh, Daniel Hul, who is a um, noted Blagizen practitioner in Israel. Um, feel free to check out his website. All right, so where I want to start is first, again, with the background that we've been saying the whole time, which is we're not saying here that Ayanhara is fictitious, false, or unreal. What we're simply saying is that the way that the ancients understood the power of the eye is not something that science and modern medicine can document, can see. In fact, none of it seems even plausibly true anymore. With that being said, just because the power of the eye to actually harm is not substantiated scientifically, it certainly doesn't mean that there isn't power to the eye that has not yet been found or seen or understood by science. So we're certainly not saying that that is out of the realm of possibility. That's point A. Point B, just because of the fact that this is where we are today, as we've already said many times, it doesn't mean that Ayanhar itself, instead of being a Siba, to use a brisker approach, could very well still be a Simen. That is to say, if someone is acting in a manner that he causes an Ayanhar, that he causes people to be jealous of him, that he causes people to be looking at him with their eyes askance, such a person perhaps is acting in a manner that's a little bit untoward, a little bit lacking, and perhaps such person will be punished by divine fiat in recompense for the way that he has been treating or she has been treating other people. So that's not Ayanhar per se causing harm of itself so much as Ayanhara is symbolic of a person who is not acting most proper with most propriety and as a result heaven will take its retribution its vengeance its revenge against such a person that i think is point b and again we've been reiterating this throughout what we cannot forget is that just because this is perhaps the view that many of us may espouse today it certainly doesn't mean that that was the view of chazal rishonim and even down last week we quoted the Tarit right, in the Tesefah's Bracha, where he has this whole story that he's going to talk about the Russian scientists, because he says, I don't care about the Maligam who are making fun of me and saying that there's no such thing as Einhar. Einhar is real. And here's a story in the Russian newspaper, the Mir, to prove it. Now, the people in the times of Chazal believed in Einhar as a raw power. Not everybody, we discussed last week, 
that Rabbi Hanina perhaps was one who did not believe in the raw power of the eye. We said that he didn't believe in Kishav. He wasn't afraid of the witch trying to take the dust off his feet, right? He wasn't afraid at all. That being said, I just want to caveat that if you look in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Gemara says on Samach Vav, that Rabbi Hanina, the Gemara brings down a few people, Rav, Rabbi Hanina, the Gemara says that Rabbi Hanina, what did he used to do every year of Shabbos? Rabbi Hanina, Rabbi Aishia, every Shabbos they would learn Sefer Yitzira. And what would they do when they were studying Sefer Yitzira? And they would create, through their knowledge of Sefer Yitzira, a, a, um, an animal, a, a, a calf, and they would eat it every Shabbos. Every year of Shabbos they would do this. So the idea that Rabbi Hanina is an example of a sort of proto-rationalist, pre-Maimadian type personality, I don't think is a plausible possibility, and certainly not one that I'm suggesting. What I was suggesting last week is that Rabbi Hanina, perhaps, not they didn't believe in the power of Hashem to do things that are unnatural, no, I certainly think he could, do, could believe that. He's not a Maimonidean. He's not going to be limited by that. But I do believe, and this I will get into, Mirza Shem in coming weeks, that he did not believe in the power of a contrary force to God to take action against, as it were, God's will. Now, with that sort of being said, I think we're ready to embark on this journey of understanding the various different types of protections against the evil eye that the ancients believed in. So if we look at the Gemara in Shabbos, the Gemara in Shabbos on Daphne Gimel, the Gemara says the following. The Gemara says, L'yetze hasus b'zanav shuo. A horse is not allowed to go out with the, with the tail of a, of a fox on Shabbos. Why not? Says Rashi, why is this horse not allowed to go out with the tail of a fox on Shabbos? They would go out with, the, with this sort of ornamental um, um, fox tail. You know, you know they make strimlach out of foxes, right? It's only in Ger, right, where the, the cost of the, of the strimles got so high, the Rebbe said there's no more strimals. Everybody wears these fake strimals. So they look like they're massive strimals. They're very expensive, but actually they're, they're the cheapest of all the strimals. But you make the strimal out of, um, you can make the strimal out of, out of foxes. I don't know what they always used to make it out of, but certainly make it out of, out of foxtails. And what we, the Gemara is saying is that you, do, you cannot allow the horse to go out with the foxtail in, in its forehead why would they be putting a foxtail on a horse? Not as an ornament for Central Park riders, but rather to prevent against Ayn Hara. So what we see from this Gemara is a few things. One, we see that they were afraid of Ayn Hara, not just for human beings, but even afraid of Ayn Hara hitting on animals, right? And we see that they also believed that there were protections against Ayn Hara. Protections, in this case, like the foxtail. If you look at the Gemara and Brachas, the Gemara and Brachas on Daphnon Hey, the Gemara says over there the following story. The Gemara says if somebody comes to a new town, 
Somebody comes to a new town. Remember, right? We discussed before that when you do something new, right? Whether you have a new inheritance that you got from a ger or a new property that you received because you got married and you're taking over your wife's assets and sort of managing them, right? Or you did a fantastic business deal that people think is inappropriate relative to the work that was put in. Anything that is seemingly shocking, anything that is seemingly inappropriately bountiful, munificent for reasons that they cannot explain through their rational little mind, which would then potentially cause INR, one must be protective against. So the more when you come into a new town and you're afraid of INR. Why? Because presumably you're new. People will be looking at you and thinking, oh, look at him, look at, him. Look at the way he is, the way he's dressed, the way you know, he comports himself, the way he carries himself. So if somebody's afraid of Einhar, what should he do? He should put his right hand in his left hand. And he should say the following. He should put his hands in each other like, you know, like you would by, by Shemar Nes, right, right? And what should he say? He should say the following. I am... Blank, in my case, Simchazalma ben Elazar Baruch, and I am from the children of Yosef. And what's that going to do? Because Yosef doesn't suffer any eye and heart. Yosef is not subject to the evil eye. And the Gemara has a variety of, of sources for this. We're going to explore this Gemara in detail when we come back to Rabbi Yechanan in, in, in future weeks. But what do we see from this Gemara? We see from this Gemara that there is protection against the evil eye by incantation. You can use a charm, you can say something, in this case, put your hands, clasp, clasp your hands together and say, I know plenty about plenty, right? I am Mizar Shal Yosef, I am from the children of Yosef that doesn't get harmed by iron heart. And that's a protection. And then the Gemara, which we quoted previously, continues, and the Gemara says, And if he's afraid of his own ayin hara, if he's afraid that maybe he's going to harm himself with his own ayin hara, sort of, he's going to genuflect, he's going to sort of self-reflect on himself, he's going to look inwardly on himself, and he's going to cause himself harm through ayin hara, says the Gemara, don't worry about that either. You can, you can um, protect against that by what? should sort of look at his left, concentrate on his left nostril. How that works against protecting against Einhar, I don't know. I can't explain it. But what we've seen so far is that Einhar can be protected about through, say, foxtails, right? It can be protected by certain charms and incantations. And, and um, it can be protected by, you know, at least against your own Einhar, by looking at your left nostril. This are the opinions of Chazal. We're not the only one, there are other ones. Well, the other one that I, I put here into the citations is the Medrash. The Medrash in two weeks ago, Parsha and Parsha is not site. The Medrash says the following, unbelievable Medrash. We already talked about this Medrash when we brought it up as a, we, we, we talked about the Tanchum. If you remember, the Tanchum said, we quoted a few weeks ago, that why was the first Luchais destroyed? Why did they get broken? Because they were given the Pumbe, they were given in a, in, a, in, a, in a wide, uh, in a very open um, uh, forum where everybody and anybody was able to, to look in. And we use that over there as a citation to prove the, 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 the notion 
that there is a fear of Ayin Har from non-Jews. That was one of the sources that I showed that I believe shows that we're not just worried about Ayin Har of Jews, we're worried about Ayin Har of non-Jews as well. Now, so the, the metric over here is very similar. It also says that the reason that the first Lukas were destroyed was because it was done publicly. And the Medrash continues, and the Medrash says that, you know what this is like? This is like when a, man, when a king, when he makes a wedding for his daughter, and he makes a big Kedushin, right? In those days, they used to separate out the wedding, the Kedushin and the Suin. They were separated by a significant length of time. So when he first makes the Kedushin, when they first get betrothed, when they first get engaged, the, he makes a very big part. He makes a very big vart. And what happens? The Sholta Behem Ayin Hara. And it, there is um, Ayin Hara that is being um, released, that is being unleashed. So when the king actually comes to marry off his daughter, so then what does he do? Ma'asa, Nasan la He gives her an amulet. Amar la. He says to her, the Ayin Hara then happened by your Kedushin. It's not that we're not going to make you a fancy wedding. No, no, we'll make you a fancy wedding. But I'm going to give you a Kameh. I'm going to give you an amulet. We're not going to get into now. Maybe for another time, right? The whole debate, right? Rabbi Yaakov Emden versus the Rabbi Yenishan The whole entire debate started because of a Kameh. Rabbi Yenishan was famed, the greatest Kameh writer of his day. He wrote the greatest amulets, and people went there from all over. Rabbi Yenison Ibshitz was the scholar par excellence, the orator par excellence, the Rosh Hashiva par excellence. He was just an amazing personality. And Rabbi Yaakov Emden, of course, was a, I don't want to say the word, I don't want to, because it's not, certainly not my place to say it, but Rabbi Yaakov Emden was a, somebody who, who was living in the town where his own father had been the rabbi, and he was just a regular balabas. So people have suggested that maybe it was something personal. I don't know whether or not, but Rabbi Yaakov Emden was an expert, a polymath, a, a Renaissance person in Kamayu who knew every, not just culture, but he knew so many other sciences. And he looked at these Kamehas and he found that this was absolutely Sabatian. And so began a whole massive debate that wrought, wreaked havoc throughout the Jewish world during the mid 1700s. Now, what do I want from this medrash? I want from this medrash that this medrash shows us that a kameya, Chazal feel that a kameya, an amulet, can also protect against the Ayin Hara. So in other words, an amulet like the foxtail is not an amulet like one I think the medrash is referring to here. The medrash is referring to here is an amulet that's actually just some sort of written inscription. What inscription, I don't know. But it's different than just simply putting a foxtail on that has sort of Ayin um, Har protecting powers. That's the first point of the Medrash, just for interest's sake. The end of the Medrash over here, the end of the Medrash says something interesting, and he says that it, the, the Medrash continues and it says, When Hashem came by the Mishkan, also there was an Ayin Har, right? By the first Luchas, it was so busy, etc. So when it came now for the Mishkan, that Hashem is now going to dwell with the Jewish people intimately and alone. This was the Nisuin. What did Hashem do? First, the Medrash says, First, Hashem gave them brachas. First, Hashem gave the brachas to the Jewish people. What are the brachas that Hashem gave to the Jewish people before, before the, uh, the, the Mishkan gets get underway? 
the brachas that we say every morning, right? By brachas atayra, right? Brachas kainim. That's what Hashem said, as it were, prior to the ma'iv, right? B'yoyim kalos hamishkan. We finish right after there in Parshas Nasser. We say that that was the end, right? That was the uh, the 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 end of the inauguration of the Mishkan. We, we talk about the inauguration of the Mishkan repeatedly in the Torah. We have it in, already in Parshas Bekude, and then we have it again in Parshas Tzav, and we have it in Shemini, and then we have in Parshas Nasa. We're always talking about the Akamas HaMishkan, the inauguration of the Mishkan. So this Medrash is set telling us that there is a Kameya that can protect against Ayin Hara, and as it were, the Hashem saying, the Berchas Kayanim, which protects against Ayin Hara. I'm not sure that the Medrash is per se saying that the Kahanim said it protects against Ayin Hara. That I don't know. But it seems certainly that the Medrash is suggesting that not only is a Kamea an actual physical object protecting against Ayin Hara, but even again, saying some incantation, in this case, Berchaz Kahanim, is also protection against Ayin Hara, at least certainly when Hashem says it. Again, we've seen it right in the Gemara and Brachas, and if you say, that's also considered to be a protection against Ayin Har. So that, those are a few examples from Chazal. Now, I wanted to talk about something that I found in the Minigus Roll, Torah of Rabbi Daniel Sperber um, of Bar Ilan. So he has there a whole list, right, of different Ayin Har practices. And you can look at it in the citations uh, and goes uh, and the outline. If you want to read it, uh, all of it. But basically, it talks about a chamsa, right? I'm sure people have heard about a chamsa. It's not only Jewish; the Muslims, Arabs around the world also have it as well, right? It's a hand with five fingers. I, I don't know exactly where it comes from. He says it's very popular in Morocco, and he says there's another custom, a very popular custom that they take around a plate of dried fruit, and everybody touches the fruit and they put the fruit back. Again, this is pre-Corona. So they put the fruit back, and the, and they and the people they spit on the ground, and they put the saliva on it, and then it's put into a um, a pot, and this fruit that have been spit at, they're they're all cooked, and then the water is given to a person who's suffering from the evil eye, and they will be protected against. And then he says, also, you know, sometimes an animal skull is used um, to it's hung up outside where people are walking because that protects against the evil eye. You remember, we spoke last week, right? Rabbi Yaakov Enden, right? The great Rabbi Yaakov Enden, we just talked about him in the Kamea battle. Rabbi Yaakov Enden says that in Turkey, in his day, there was a minute in Turkey in the shuls, they used to put an ostrich egg. Because we recall, right? Rabbi Yaakov Enden says, and we saw also the Muggen office of the Tash Bates, that they believed that the power of an ostrich was such with the, that their eye was able to hatch eggs their own eggs. They could look at their, they could look at their eggs and they could hatch them by simply, I guess, you know, using the heat of their gaze. Says, says the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the Minigisrael Torah by, by Sperber that they used to hang the skulls. It reminds you, of course, they used to hang the ostrich eggs in the shuls. So now I want to move to a Zayar. The Zayar is in this week's Parsha, so that's why it's very appropriate to mention it. Um, the Zayar is very, you know, at the end of this week's parsha, right? Um, we're in parsha Shlach. The end of the parsha is going to talk about the mitzvah of tzitzis, right? So the, 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 the Pusik there says, 
the what we say every day. That you're supposed to put tchelis on your tzitzis. Says the Zayar in the end. Again, you have it there in your in your outline in your citations that the, the every person has to be a tam yam. What does it mean a tam yam? It means a tam yam that you have to have elements of tamus and elements of yamus. And the Zayar is very interested in this idea because according to the Zayar, there is something special about the power of tchelis. To the point that according to the Zayah, when the Jews would travel, what would the Jews do? They would cover the kalim of the Mishkan, covering in tchelis type of coverings. Why tchelis? Because tchelis protects against the evil eye. Says the Zayah of the following. He says, what does it mean that a person is going to be a Tam Yam? Tam a person is a tam by wearing the arba confess by wearing the tzitzis the right way. As they say, as they would say in Yiddish, right? You're reading, you're you're wearing the the the, the tzitzis the right way, and then he continues. Yam, what does it mean that you're a yam? Or you have to be a tam yam. What's it mean a yam? This tcheles that somehow is like the 70 steers in the sea. That if a person is wearing the blue tcheles, he won't be able to be harmed by the evil eye. And then he says, And a person should be a tam yam with God. Him up, as it were, up there and us here. So that means to say that according to the Zayar, the protection against the evil eye can be tchelas. It was used in the Mishkan for the Kalim to protect against the evil eye. And it's used daily when worn in Siddhas. Not talking here about the veracity of wearing tchelas or the requirement to wear tchelas. That is a separate topic, not for right now. A very interesting topic, but not for right now. What we see, one of the things from the Zayar is something that I do want to get into a little bit. Because what we are seeing from here is that there is a sort of apotropaic value to wearing the tchelas, to the mitzvah. And that itself is something that I do want to talk a little bit about before we move on, because I think on this, we will get a chance to see not only the approach of the Rambam, but also, but also we will get, we will get the chance. I was so muted, but it wasn't there before. Whoever's talking, please mute themselves. We will also get the chance to, um, to see the other view that is not um, like the, uh, the Zayar at all. All right, so, Let's start out with the Rambam. The Rambam, where I'm looking now, is in Hilchai Sittis. The Rambam is in Hilchai Sittis and Paragimel. So the Rambam says the following. A person always has to be very careful, right, with the mitzvah of Sittis. Why? Because it's compared to, it's like 
all the mitzvahs in the Torah. Shene'emar, as we have, or Yisam Oisos, Charetim, as kol mitzvahs Hashem ba'asisam Oisam. When you look at the tzitzis, you're supposed to remember the whole Torah. So we just saw the Zayar. The Zayar said that there's an apropotraic value to wearing the tcheles. It protects you against the evil eye. According to the Rambam, there's a value in wearing the tzitzis. Why? Because you remember all the mitzvahs in the Torah. That's what it says. It's chaytim, it's called mitzvahs. You're supposed to remember all the mitzvahs in the Torah when you wear it. I want to look at a Rambam now in Hilchas Tefillin. The Rambam in Hilchas Tefillin at the end of Paragvav. The Rambam says the following. Chayiv Adam Lizarbim Mezuzah. He says, every person is required to what? Be careful in the mitzvah of mezuzah. Why? Because the because it's a requirement always. And every time he comes in or goes out, he will always encounter the oneness of God. So it's a very important mitzvah because every time you leave, and you remember the Gemara Nabadizar, the Gemara Nabadizar about Unculus, right? The, 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 the Roman emperor, his uncle, sends in a uh, three legions of people to get him out. And each time he manages to talk them out of it. And the last time they're not going to talk to, you're not allowed to talk to Uncle Salah, because when you talk to him, his dialectic is better than Socrates. He's going to manage to convince you of the veracity of his Jewish ways, and you cannot talk to him at all. So as he goes out, he, you know, um, doesn't kiss the mezuzah. That, by the way, is clear. He doesn't kiss the mezuzah. Kissing the mezuzah is not necessarily something that is 100% uh, obvious, certainly not from that Gemara. What he, what he, what he, what he does is, it seems that he may touch the mezuzah. That is what I think he does in the Gemara. Kissing is not there, and the soldiers want to know what's going on. Of course, he explains that the difference between your leader and my leader is that my leader right protects me, and your leader you protect him, and of course they end up becoming Judaized as well, and the Roman uncle doesn't try to get uncles back anymore. Says the Rambam, you know why it's incredibly important to have the mezuzah in your house? Because every time you come in or go out of your house, if you stop for a moment and ponder the mezuzah, you remember the oneness of God. That's the importance of a mezuzah. And he says, Right, you're going to remember your love for him. You're going to wake up from your shina, from your sleep. By the way, if anybody... Paid attention in last week's Haftorah. It's one of the few times when you have a Shiva na that you actually would have a correctable, a correctable mistake, right? Most times in the Torah, when you have a Shiva, even if most people don't know the difference between a Shiva na or a Shiva nach, it doesn't make a difference. It's the Seder Gamor. The, what, there is two exceptions, right? One exception is in Parashat when Yaakov gets up Mishin Nasai, Right? If you would read it, Mishnasa, you would say Yaakov got up from his Torah. Now, of course, the rabbis say he learned for 14 years, but that's certainly not what the text means. The text means what he did was he got up from his sleep. So that would be Mishnasa. The other time is in Paris to Akev, when the Pasuk says over there, So if you say, means he answered him, not that he gave them Inui. We also, again, like I said, had Mishnah saying last week's Haftar. And nevertheless, so he continues the Rambam. The Rambam says that you're going to wake up when you think about the oneness of God and his unity and his infiniteness. You're going to stop being such a fool and you're going to stop being so shogor in the temporal innaities of this world. 
So therefore, you're going to know there's nothing else that stands for infinite time except for God himself, as it were. And therefore, somebody who's wearing tefillin, and he has sittas, and he has a mezuzah, he's never going to sin. Why not, says the Rabbah? And this is his conclusion. Because he has many people who are reminding him constantly about God's oneness, about his infiniteness, about his absolute omniscience. He has all these reminders at all points in his life. And these are the Isis of the Jew, right? says the Rambam. These are what? The angels. That protect him against sinning, says the Rambam. As it says in Pasik, Hashem protects him by sending an angel. Says the Rambam, was that an angel? No angel. The angel that Hashem is protecting us with are the mitzvahs themselves. Not that they have an appropriate value. They're not like medicinal in any way. They are mental. They will remind you that God exists, that he is infinite, that he is omniscient, that he is ubiquitous. And by remembering, oh yeah, there's a creator. The reason I'm here is because of this infinite being that I can't understand, that I can't possibly fathom, but he's responsible for everything. Oh yeah. Then the material, temporal, sort of short, Cited parts of, well, every part of our life, we are able to sort of reflect for a moment and put it into its place. That's what the mitzvah does. The mitzvah doesn't have some sort of protection against Ayin Hara. It's there to remind you of God. The tzitzes are not there to protect against Ayin Hara. They're there to remember all the mitzvahs in the Torah. Now, let's continue with the Rambam. The Rambam says, in Hilchas Tefillin, Further on, the Rambam says in Parag Hay, uh, sorry, right, right before that in Parag Hay, the Rambam says the following. The Rambam says, in those days, there were people who used to write on the mezuzahs the, the names of angels. So he says, Anybody who writes in their mezuzah, names of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, or angels, or the like, has no chelik in Eilam Haba. Why? She'elu atipshim. These fools. It's not enough for them that they violated, that they've been mevatel the mitzvah, that they have rescinded the mitzvah because of the fact that they've passled it up by writing all sorts of stuff on it. Forget that. It's not enough that they did that. But you know what else they've done? They've taken a mitzvah that's there to remind you of the oneness of God. And what have they done with that? What they've done with that is they've made the mitzvah into a kamea, into an amulet, merely to what? For their own pleasure. They think that that somehow is going to help them. Right? The word kamea is no accident. The Ramam is saying, I remember the Rambam in Mishnah Torah is not the Moran of Uchim. It's not the Parish of Mishnah. He wrote it in Hebrew, in Mishnaic Hebrew. He's using the word Kamea deliberately. The mitzvah is not a Kamea. The mitzvah is no amulet. The mitzvah is there to remind you to be cognizant, to be aware of the existence of God at all times. You have to have a mazkir at all times. 
but it's not there because somehow by doing this is protecting you in a physical way. No, that's not what it's there for at all. And in fact, those who do actually believe that, those who do write names of angels or God in mezuzahs, those people are obviously mevatel the mitzvah, the seder, but not just that. What they're also doing is absolutely denigrating and denying the mitzvah of Hashem that is there to create a relationship with God and making it into a bunch of amulets and a bunch of heebie-jeebie. There are one more, well, maybe two more Rambams. The Rambam says later on also in Hilchus Tefillin, sorry, I think I said later, earlier in Hilchus Tefillin, the Rambam says the following, even though it's a mitzvah to wear its fillin all day, during davening, it's the most important time to wear its fillin. The rabbis say, whoever is right? Because it says, you're talking about its fillin. So, how do you daven without its fillin on? It's like you're giving false testimony. You're not allowed to do that. So, you have to, you have to wear its fillin at least by davening. Ideally, you wear it for longer, but at least by davening, you should wear its fillin. And then he says the following. Whoever doesn't put on tefillin, he's over all these various different things. The chal, he says, the chal harogil b'tefillin, marach yomim shenem Hashem aleim yachta. Whoever wears tefillin regularly, Hashem will be marach his days. Does that mean that the Rambam is saying, oh, the tefillin, it's some sort of a kameya? You're going to have lengthy days now? No, he's quoting a puzzle. The puzzle says that whoever is going to be um, if Hashem is on him, it's going to be Marach Yomim, because Chazal say that if you wear, if, based upon the puzzle, if you wear tefillin, you're going to have a lengthy life. Is it saying that your mitzvahs are kameh if you honor your parents? The puzzle says, Right? That's not a kameh. Now, it's not for right now, but it is a very interesting topic to me, and it's one that I've thought about a bunch, in relation to the mitzvah, say, of Shluch HaKain. Right, where the Torah also says that you have a arichas yamim if you do it. There are many people out there who will do shluch hakain every single day to the same bird's nest. Right? Is that something that the Torah is condoning, permitting, promoting? Not for right now. But is that making the mitzvah into a kameya? I will leave on that point and move on to another Rambam. The Rambam says... Here, real quick question. When we say ki yikare, you, you can't actively search it so it's fantastic ben i totally uh, agree with the point um i don't want to get sidetracked into going all the way through it now but yes um by definition it would seem as a matter of shot that certainly um it is certainly um you're 100 right that it would not be seemingly um uh, the point to be doing it if you deliberately are planning it every day, uh, that would seem to defeat the purpose. Of course, moreover, it says, the, the presumption would be that it's something that you needed, that that's why you were taking it. And it's not just simply a waste that you're throwing the eggs out, as I've heard people do, which to me is just absolutely mind-boggling. How do you throw the eggs out? Forget the Baal aspect of it, but what was the purpose of the mitzvah? Just to, just to send the mother away? I mean, you remember the Gemara, Gemara says that, Whoever says that, whoever davens to Hashem thinking that somehow the, 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 the way Hashem deals with the bird is somehow uh, Hashem is a Rachaman is absolutely 
is a heretic. He's a rank heretic. You're not allowed to daven like that. So why would be the point of sending away the, the mother just to throw out the eggs? Tikach luck to put it in the garbage seems to me absolutely not able to be substantiated as a matter of course. But with that being said, there are certainly some Mepharshim who do agree with that practice. So like I said, it's for another time, but let's move on. So now I want to go to the Rambam and Hilchus Avadizar. The Rambam and Hilchus Avadizar talks about the following. He says that somebody who is bitten by a scorpion, somebody that has a, a, a snake bite, right? So how do you heal it? It's not that they have the antidotes that they have today. So they used to do lechisha. They used to do some sort of charm incantations. And the Rambam says, you know what? It's okay. The Afilu B'Shabbos, you're even allowed to do these incantations on Shabbos. Because it's some sort of placebo effect. You can make the guy feel better. Even though it has absolutely no medicinal benefit. Nevertheless, the rabbis permitted it. And the person shouldn't go insane. Since he views this as having some value, since you're not doing anything here, you're just saying something, just say it. It's fine to say it or let him feel a bit better. That is halacha number one. Halacha number two here, the Rambam continues, and he says the following. What happens if you have a kid who doesn't want to sleep, right? So, you know, one, one method of, of calming your kid down to, to sleep is you shake him, right? You shake him so much that eventually they call the child services, right? That's one possibility. The other possibility is you take a Sefer Torah or tefillin, you put it on the kid's crib so he should sleep. Now listen to this Rambam. Tell me if you didn't hear it before. Says the Rambam, It's not enough for these people. They're like chaver chaver people. Or menachish people. These are rank heretics. Why? Because they're making the Torah into actual medicinal properties. They're making the Torah into medicine. And here is where we get the position of the Rambam. What is the mitzvahs in the Torah? They heal the soul. They quiet the mind. They bring the mind to God. They are not medicinal. Yes, I could say the same, says the Rambam, and still say they are not filling that if you wear filling, you're gonna have Marik Yamim. The same way by Kibbutz Av, you can have Marik Yamim because they have drushes from Sukkim, it's fine. But not that you have a medicinal value to it. You don't put it on a kid's bed so they should be feeling better. Says, so, and he continues. And listen carefully to this Rambam. It's an amazing point. We don't we don't hear it, I think, in our daily life at all. Says the Rambam. If a, a bari, if a healthy person reads psukim or mizmar from tehillim, so that the merit of his reading psukim from the Torah should have a protection for him, and it should therefore, therefore thereby be saved from various terrible things. It's permitted. Notice the Rabbim doesn't say, oh, you know, like we say by the, um, 
by the uh, by the Seder, right? We'll call him marvelous Sapper, Where is the Meshuvah? Fantastic. Say more. Say more. No. Harizem Mutter. You're permitted to recite the Tehillim if what you want to do when you recite Tehillim is to get merit and the like. Why? Because the Ramam sees this as on the gray line. Yes, you could do it. Certainly, hundreds and thousands of grandmothers and grandfathers have cried tears in their Tehillim. The Ramam is not going to take that away. But we should understand that the Torah is not a refuas haguf. The Torah is a refuas hanefesh. The idea of using the Torah as a way to provide medicinal benefit is a violation of the Torah. To actually physically use the Torah in that way is 100% contrary to the Torah according to the Rambam. Now think of that in relation to what we saw about the Zayar and about Tcheles in relation to being a protection against Ayanhar. Clearly, they are coming from two different schools of thought. So I noticed that we are sort of running a little bit short on time again. So I want to hurry up a little bit. I want to go to Taisefta. Taisefta in Shabbos lists out what's called Darkei Aramayri, a lot of different things. One of the things that are listed out against Darkei that are a violation of Yahadus because of Darkei Aramayri. We'll give it to, uh, I'll speak a little bit about Darkei Aramayri for, for a few minutes just to give a background on what it is. But what, it, what, what the Taisefta says is that if you put Vechut Odaim Al Etzboi, if you put a red string on your etzba, that is prohibited because of Dagi Aramayri. I don't know about a red string on your ankle or a red string on your wrist. I know a red string on your etzba. That is prohibited because Dagi Aramayri. That's the Tesefta says that. Yeah? All right. Then, the Rambam says the following. And I, I won't go through it now in, in all the detail. But I sent you in the, um, in the email the correspondence that I have with Daniel Hull about Blagizim. Make sure you take a look at that because it will touch on some of these citations as well. Anyhow, the Rambam says in Hilcha Shabbos, the Rambam says he's talking here about the fox tale, right? Who let the, the fox out? I forget the name of the song exactly. But the Rambam is here talking about what? The various different things that protect, that people thought protected in the realm of Sgula against various ills and ailments. Says the Rambam, It's all from the Gemara and Shabbos. Right, if you want to use a, a, a grasshopper, a locust egg, or a shen ashul, it's a, the tooth of a fox, not the tail of a fox. Here we have the tooth of the fox. That's like the, the nail of a, a, from the condemned man. All of these things that the Gemara says are okay to be able to tie um, uh, to a person on Shabbos. There's no issue of that. But behold, Dover. Oh, I should say one thing. So, like I said, we'll talk maybe in a few minutes about Dark Yamari. But what Dark Yamari is, in short, is essentially not idolatrous per se, but it's part of the Lysel Chubachukers Hagai. We don't want to be like the Gaim. It's a lot in the Torah, right? You're not allowed to. You're not allowed to do that. It's fine. So we have a whole list of things of dark Yomari. Like I just said, the Tesef has a whole list of dark Yomari. Says the Rambam, uh, based upon the Gemara, that there are a number of things that are not included in dark Yomari because the Gemara says that anything mishum refuah, anything that is 
for healing, ain't by Mishon Dagger Murray. There's no problem. There's no prohibition. There's no iser. There's no anything about Dagger Murray. And the Rambam brings it down, Lehalacha. Says the Rambam, these three things that we just mentioned, is no problem. You can go out with that on Shabbos. You don't have to worry about Dagger Murray, because that's, and you don't have to worry about Shabbos. You don't have to worry about anything. Fine. Then the Rambam continues, and he says, Behold, Dabar is a very key line. And any item, any item that's used for healing, provided that the doctors say that it's helpful. If the doctors say that it's helpful, no problem to go out with that thing. You don't have to worry about it. There's no issue of that one needs to be worried about. What is unclear from the Rambam from here is whether or not one must be worried about in other words, is the Rambam saying that if a doctor says it's okay, that there is healing properties, medicinal properties to whatever it is that you are doing, that therefore there's no problem to put it on you know, your body. <coughs> we know, of course, that that is also therefore not going to be Dr. Murray because anything is not Dr. Murray. But what about the other way? What if the doctor says no value to it? What if there's no doctors, but the science says that there's no value to it? Is that... Obviously, that means then that for Hilchah Shabbos, you can't do it. But does that mean that there is a problem with Dagir Amayri? That is not 100% clear from the Rambam over here. However, from the Rambam and the Mayra, I think it's 100% clear. And this is the crux of my debate with who. The Rambam says the following. In Chela Gimel, Perik Lamed Zayin, the Rambam says the following about Dagir Amayri. He says, This is the background of Dagir Amayri also. Well, uh, we, we can do it in a few places. There's, I also have, a, I also put a radak. The next citation is a radak. Also, give a whole background on Dr. Murray. You can look at it there. That radak in Yeshaya is very similar to the Rambam in the beginning of Hilchus of Adizar. We talked about Dar Enosh and the whole Shalshelas of how you got to Avodah It's actually Kedai if you look at the radak and the Rambam. Right, the radak is a little bit earlier than the Rambam. Take a look at both of them and see how they compare on that point. You'll see a, l- a little bit of a distinction, not exactly the same. In any event, uh, we don't have enough time right now to go into all that. So I just wanted to say the Meir. What does the Rambam say in the Meir Nebuchadnezzar? The Rambam, which again, he did not write it in Hebrew. So we're reading a translation here. We are reading the translation, or I am reading the translation from the Kapach, right? The great Yemenite Kapach family. They had their own issues with uh, Kabbalah and the Zohar, not for right now. They uh, got into issues with Ruff Cook about it. A long and very fascinating story, but probably um, a little bit beside the point. So the, the, so this is his translation. He was a native Arab speaker from Yemen, yes? Um, there's a beautiful picture. I included every year my Gedalim picture list of Rabbi Kapach holding a Yemenite asterisk, which is, you know, basically as big as him. Um, in any event, he said the following, this is his translation of the Rambam's matter. The Torah prohibits one from doing anything that is remotely similar to uh, these, uh, these magic tricks, the magic that these people would do. Why? In order to keep you far away from doing my shafim, right? The idea is that you should be far away from practicing magic. So how, do, how does the Torah do that? The Torah does it the following way. 
Says the Rambam, Kloimar. Says the Rambam, Kloimar. Kol masha emrim shehu mayel mi ein ha'iyun ha'tivi mechayavai. Anything that anybody says is helpful, but there is no way to prove it from nature if science cannot find the benefit of this medicine. The only way that this is actually doing anything is through some sort of segula, some sort of um, non-rational method. This thing would be what it's considered to be which means what? This is basically like an anaf. It's like a leaf. It's like a branch of kishuf. So basically, again, in order to keep us far away from kishuf, which is absolutely prohibited in the Torah, therefore, we are prohibited to follow any part of their customs. Included in those customs are things that they say have beneficial medicinal value, but we cannot isolate it. We cannot rationally explain how it's having any value. Those things are prohibited because under they go fall under the rubric of Darke Haramayri. The Ramam agrees with the Gemara that says anything Mishumrafua is Aimba Mishum Darke Murray. No problem. The Ramam grants you that. Now listen, right? Listen. Because the Rambam is writing this in the mirror at the end of his life. And let's think about what we just saw before when we are reading in the Mishnah Torah, right? Because we have to compare what he's saying now, right, to what he said in, at the end of his life in the mirror to what he said in Mishnah Torah before. What does he say here? Says the Rambam, the following. He says, He says, Don't be bothered by the fact that the rabbis per- permitted you to use the, the, the nail of a condemned man or the fox tooth as a way, right? You can walk out on Shabbos with that stuff, right? It's a way to protect oneself. Just don't worry about that. Why not? Because these items in those days, they thought in those days that these items were scientifically proven. And therefore, they're being done for refuah. And as I've said, says the Rambam, anything Mishum refuah, as the Gemara says, is aimed by Mishum Dr. You don't have to worry about it. If it's actual medicinal, it's not Kishof. You can 100% use it. With, not like Bidiyevit. Lichatchila of Lichatchila. No problem. Says the Rambam. In those days, they thought the Shena Shul and the Misamrat Slov were actually medicinal. They thought they were Mechiach by Nisoyon. They thought that it passed a double blind scientific test. And the Rambam continues, Anything that passes a test, like any of these things, he says, even if the, the brain, even if the science has not advanced to the point that it can prove why it's working. In other words, so long as the science just says that it works, even if the science doesn't know how it works or why it works, nevertheless, mutter la'asaisai, the harehu mishumrafua. It is 100% mutter, and there's no problem whatsoever to use it. So, 
we have a few minutes left, and now we get to Blagizin, right? Blagizin, spelled, if you look at it, look at the citations, look at the outline, go to the website of Daniel Hul, and you will get as much information as you possibly want. In any event, what Mr. Hu, or Rabbi Hu has um, promoted and what he has found is the following. He will protect, he will do blood geezer, which is essentially a method in those days they used to pour lead. I don't know if he actually pours lead or not. These days they don't pour lead anymore in many places. They use tin or wax. And the reason they use tin or wax is because pouring lead can actually cause physical harm. I guess they can't protect against that. So, therefore, that's no longer used. In any event, what it does is it protects against Dayan Har because they do certain prayers and special things, and they look at the lead, and they figure out what your problems are, and then they can remove those problems. According to Hul, the person being treated does not need to be present during the procedure, and they may even be in another country. The person being treated does not even need to be aware that the procedure is being done for them. This procedure to remove the iron heart by pouring lead has been practiced by Jews around the world for centuries. In fact, for the last five years, Rabbi Hula has been using this ancient traditional method to firstly identify and then remove iron heart to the best of his ability, remotely, over the phone, with amazing results, Baruch Hashem. However, under no circumstances should this procedure, or the Kamea, be relied upon to replace conventional medicine, or in place of responsible behavior to look after yourself. Then he continues, often in the case of medical issues, the procedure acts as the key to allow the conventional medical procedure to work or to successfully identify the correct conventional medical treatment. Please understand that the procedure requires a large amount of physical and mental and spiritual effort by Rabbi Hul. He cannot do more than a certain amount of procedures in one day. It is done on a first-come, first-served basis. We will make maximum effort to oblige every single person as soon as possible. During this procedure, it drains the energy of the person doing the procedure, and Rabbi Hul used to become ill after removing Ayin Hara regularly until he received the bracha and encouragement of Rabbi David Abu Hatzer Shlita because he was matzlech and helping people, and therefore he obtained a kamea for protection. That is from Hul's website. So you ask me, okay, I like to think of myself as a somewhat rational person. Why would I bother talking to him? Why did I reach out and why did I have a conversation in the emails? Why did I do that? The reason is simple. Most of the people you would have assumed that are practitioners of this, you say, oh, they're not very intelligent. Actually on Hul's website, he includes a tshuva from his brother permitting the lead pouring. And you go through the tshuva, it's actually relatively learned. It means the guy actually knows the sugya. At least his brother knows the sugya. So it's like, okay, it's very interesting. Why does this person feel the need to do this. So I thought to myself, you know, this person has a need to do this because obviously they come from something in the yeshiva world. Kachava, the guy learned America's Torah in Israel. He grew up in England. He was a normal guy. And, you know, as I said to him, I have no issue because, you know, the same way that the Gemara says, if it's Mishum to my mind, it's Mishum Parnasa. Okay. Everybody has their thing they have to do. People sometimes cut corners and go by on their principles. I don't want to condemn anyone because you can never, you can't judge somebody until you're in his place. I have no idea the kinds of pressures he's on. No, people, maybe people actually do get better right from some sort of placebo type effect. Or maybe there is some sort of a power to the black geezin. So why, 
why should I criticize or castigate him in that regard? I won't. But what I would do is I would say that it's Darkei Amari without any ands, ifs, or buts, or qualms and under, the, no, under no circumstances according to Maimonides. In other words, it may very well be. And in fact, there are certain citations that he has that I you know, can cite now as well um, that do permit it. But I don't believe that you can argue that the Rambam permits it. Why not? Because what does the Rambam say? The Rambam says that anything that is what? Shown by science to work. There have been no science tests to show the validity, the veracity of Blygizim. No doctor, as we saw on Shabbos, no doctor, I'm not sure, an MD or a, or a DO or any other type of doctor, maybe a homeopathic doctor says something, I don't know. But certainly no doctor worth his salt that anybody would go to has ever said that Blygizim works. However, like I always want to show the other side as well, there's a Mishpacha article. The Mishpacha article that I put here quotes some guy named Menachem Nissel, who says the following. He says, my Rebbe, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, who passed away a couple of years ago, did not encourage his Talmudim to run to Ayanhara ladies. However, even Ayanhara had a system in Rabbi Shapiro's worldview. He says, I once approached him after a number of incidents that happened and asked him whether there was Ayanhara. And he said, no, the family should daven. And then he says, dealing with Ayanhara requires an authentic Mesorah. Rabbi Moshe Shapiro assured me that what, in this case, this guy's sister does isn't Kishuf. It's not witchcraft. As long as she was following an authentic Mesorah, I had nothing to worry about. And my sister explained that she learned her skills from her mother-in-law, who came from a family of Bohash Hasidim. So therefore, she was following her family tradition, and there were no issues. All right? So I'd like to conclude one more thing, which is the other way to spell Bleigiesen in the German way, the way the Germans would spell the G, like a big B. And if you look there, you'll see Bleigiesen, the German way, lead pouring. This is known as Malibidomancy right? Which is predicting, in English, means predicting the future. Germans like to predict what will happen in the coming year, and they have an interesting way to do that. Lead pouring. Why is it lead pouring? Because what the lead does, and you can buy this in Germany, in Austria, Switzerland, etc. You can buy these kinds of kits where they contain these figures that you pour them into a boiling pan, and you can then look at the pan, and it comes out of shape, and each shape is used to predict that person's fate for the coming year. Some people today use wax or tin, but lead is considered to be unhealthy. So what is Blygizen? Certainly not a Jewish custom. It's a custom that comes from outside. It's a custom that we have sort of, or at least some people have incorporated into Judaism. And today I want to argue that it is a way of protecting against Ayanhara. Like the fox tail or the fox tooth, depending on which source we were looking at. Or perhaps like the incantations of saying that from your, from Zahar Shal Yosef. Or perhaps like putting or looking at your left nostril. Or perhaps like saying, Berchaz Kranim, right? Or perhaps like putting on a red string. 
All of these things were thought at one point to have protective value against the evil eye. But there's a difference between them. There's a difference. The difference is, is that saying something is not doing anything with any mamushes. There's nothing of substance that one does when one says something. So saying something will generally be okay. Even if it doesn't help, it's certainly permitted to say. But to do something, all of a sudden we get into an issue. The issue is Dr. Murray and the idea that we're supposed to be far away from the Kishof or far away from the Chukas HaGoyim, depending on the different sources that we mentioned before. Says the Rambam, anything that has remotely medicinal value that science has shown, even if it cannot explain why it works, is not a problem of Dr. Murray. What I'm saying is certainly the red string is prohibited because of Dr. Amar, because of this, I have to set it straight out. But it seems to me that even though the Rambam and the Mishnah Torah said that the fox, the fox tooth and the condemned man's nail and the locust egg, all that stuff was permitted. But the Rambam and the Mar seems to be taking that away a bit. And he says, in those days, they thought those things worked. Maybe when he's writing the Murrah some years later, 20, 30 years later, maybe then at that point it doesn't work. I don't know. It's not 100% clear to me. But it is very pregnant with an idea that if he's saying, the ice on Zmanim, in those days they thought it worked. But nowadays we know that these things don't work. And if we know not only that it doesn't work, but that the source of it is predicting the future, which is 100% prohibited in the Torah, then perhaps one should avoid it because of Dr. Amari. Yashikayach, one wish everybody a good Shabbos. Happy to answer or discuss any questions or comments.